0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we celebrate the second annual Freedom Day... Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is Freedom Day here at the National Constitution Center, a thrilling bipartisan celebration of what the right and the left agree and disagree about the future of freedom. We have a phenomenal series of thought leaders from across America who are going to discuss the future of online speech and terrorism, the future of free speech on campus, and I've persuaded two of our most distinguished guests to join me here live in our beautiful podcast studio at the NCC to talk about the future of free speech at the Supreme Court. Adam Liptak is the Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. Jeffrey Stone is Edward H. Levy, Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Adam, Jeff, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Jeff.
0: Really delighted to have this conversation. So let's begin with areas of consensus. There have been over the past five years at the Supreme Court, a number of cases where the Supreme Court is unanimous or Nearly so, and liberal and conservative justices are converging to protect the First Amendment, including extremely unpopular speech ranging from protests at funerals to animal crush videos. Adam, can you broadly describe the 9-to-0 and 8-to-1 cases in which liberal and conservatives agree about the First Amendment?
2: Uh, These are colorful, important, but fairly low-stakes cases involving things like uh, uh, depictions of animal cruelty, uh, hateful protests at military funerals, uh, violent video games, lying about uh, medals. Uh, and one thing to be said about them is well, maybe two things. In most of the rest of the world, people would be scratching their heads about what the hell do Americans think to protect this kind of very low value speech. Um, and it, 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 it's emblematic of a court that um, that is committed to free speech, but maybe in areas where it doesn't matter terribly, and indeed where Congress is capable of responding. So when the court strikes down one kind of animal cruelty depiction case, Congress can respond with another law. If it strikes down one kind of uh, law about uh, lying about um, military decorations, it can respond with another law. So to an extent, the second point is, these are didactic cases, meaning they're teaching moments. They're ways to say to the American people, yes, we really authentically believe in free speech. So the next time you even think about, say, banning a library book, that's not what we do as Americans. And it does tend to forge a societal consensus different from the rest of the world, that we really mean it when we believe uh, that free speech needs to be protected.
0: Interesting. Jeff, do you agree with Adam that these are re- symbolic but important teaching moments? And tell us about whether you're surprised that conservatives and liberals are converging here. We have a few dissents in these cases, often from Justice Samuel Alito, who defends a more privacy-protective view over free speech and the funeral protest and uh, the, the crush video cases. How is it that conservatives and liberals came to agree about these cases?
1: Well, first, let me say a bit about why I think these cases are actually... In some ways quite important. Um, uh, First Amendment doctrine basically uh, uh, regards as the most important question is when the government chooses to regulate speech because of the message that's communicated. And uh, over time, the court has come to the view that there's a very strong presumption that when the government tries to uh, regulate a particular viewpoint or expression, uh, that it can't do so unless it can show clear and present danger of very grave harm and almost never Uh, is such regulation permitted. But there has been one historic exception to that, which is what the court has come to see as something called low-value speech, that is speech that isn't entitled to or doesn't merit the full protection of the First Amendment. And examples of that would be uh, libel or um, fighting words or threats uh, and, over time, obscenity. And over time, the court has said, in these categories, Uh, then the government doesn't have to show a clear and present danger of grave harm. It's allowed to regulate as long as there's a reasonable justification. And what's interesting about each of these cases is that um, in each of them, there was an argument made to the court that this particular category of speech that was being regulated should not be treated as um, worthy of the full protection of the First Amendment, but should be added as another example of this low-value type of speech. And the key about these cases is the court rejected the invitation to do that. And, for example, it would be easy to say that, well, violent video games, are, you know, what does that have to do with what the First Amendment's about? Let's call that low-value speech. Um, or uh, uh, animal crush videos, videos that show animals being uh, it's destroyed. Uh, what does that have to do with free speech? Let's call that low-value speech. Um, And and so the court, instead of accepting that that sort of logical invitation, has basically said, no, we're not going to go there. It said that we are, in fact, distrustful of ourselves about the danger that if we think something is low value, who are we to make that decision? So instead, we're going to limit this concept of low value speech to only those categories that have historically been regulated in a reasonably safe way. And we're not going to give ourselves the power to decide we think this isn't useful speech, so we're going to allow it to be regulated. And that's a really profoundly important line that they've drawn. Um, And it may be true that in any of these particular cases, uh, the stakes aren't really that high in the long run. But by cabining their own authority to do this, I think they've made a very important statement about um, the protection of free speech.
0: Wonderful. Well, listeners, if you want a comprehensive list of the categories of speech that the court considers low value, check out the phenomenal interactive constitution where you'll find Jeff Stone and Eugene Volokh agreeing about these categories and enumerating them, and it's an amazing resource. Adam, let's turn to the areas of disagreement. As you both described it, there's there's broad agreement that uh, you can't regulate speech because you consider it low value or disapprove of it morally. But there are a bunch of cases, including those involving campaign finance, unions, and commercial speech, where liberals and conservatives are quite divided, and we often find five to four decisions. How would you characterize this split, and where did that come from?
2: The um, the First Amendment, Jeff, used to be a left-wing project. It used to protect uh, flag burners and hippies and the lonely pamphleteer and dissenters. And over time, uh, right-wing lawyers and conservative judges have come to understand that it can also be a powerful deregulatory tool, and that it can be a way to attack uh, restrictions on uh, campaign finance, on commercial speech, say, by pharmaceutical companies or tobacco companies, and also uh, the power of public unions uh, in what they can do to, uh, to, to, to get compulsory uh, dues or the equivalence of dues from their members. And that movement really is the arc of the last 20 or 30 years, where in addition to these, and I agree with Jeff entirely as a matter of doctrine, these important, but in some ways minor cases we talked about a second ago, the big movement and, and also emblematic of the Roberts Court is the way in which conservative groups have come to realize that they can use the First Amendment as a tool to attack economic and, uh, and political speech regulation.
0: Great. Well, uh, Jeff, in your separate statement on the interactive constitution, you and Eugene Volokh disagree about this. And you note that this uh, split where conservatives want to use the First Amendment to prohibit regulation of commercial speech uh, is indeed a dramatic divide. Some have called this First Amendment Lochnerism, referring to the Lochner case, which struck down maximum hour laws for bakers. Uh, Is that a fair description? And how would you characterize this division between liberals and conservatives when it comes to commercial and campaign
1: Well, first, I would separate the commercial and the campaign because I think they involve quite different issues, even though the lineups uh, among the justices are similar. Um, In the commercial context, uh, historically, the court had said that commercial advertising is a a variant of low-value speech and it had held that commercial advertising uh, essentially is not protected by the First Amendment. This is not what the First Amendment's about. It's always been regulated. There's a long history of its regulation, um, and therefore uh, the government can regulate it as long as it has a reasonable justification for doing so. Um, It wasn't until after Richard Nixon appointed four justices to the Supreme Court and substantially changed the makeup of the court that the Supreme Court overruled those prior decisions and held that commercial advertising Um, although still low value, is entitled to a very substantial degree of protection under the Constitution. And in the years since then, since the mid-1970s, late 1970s, the court has continued to elevate the the degree of of justification that is required to regulate um, commercial advertising. So a simple example is it used to be the case that if, for example, the government thought a particular product uh, was dangerous or harmful, to individuals, even if it chose to allow people to purchase and use the product, it could attempt to deter its use by regulating or prohibiting advertising. So a simple example of this would be if, if, for example, the government wanted to say, well, look, cigarettes are really harmful. It's not good for people to smoke. Um, It causes them all sorts of health harms. It causes their families' harms. It winds up um, inflicting harms on the government, which has to take care of the medical care. So even though we're going to give people the freedom to smoke, we're going to prohibit cigarette advertising. Well, before the 1970s, that would have been perfectly okay. Today, the Supreme Court would say, no, that's not okay. Basically, it says that um, if the government's rationale for prohibiting commercial advertising is paternalistic, if it's basically saying, we know better than you about what's good for you. then that's not going to be sufficient justification for regulating commercial speech. So what they've done is in large part uh, taken what used to be an area in which the elected branches of government were given a great deal of deference and instead now basically said that this this kind of expression can't be regulated. So uh, that's an example of the low-value speech category evolving over time, mainly driven by the conservative justices. And uh, the campaign finance, I think, is quite different. Um, there, uh, the, the fundamental issue is not about high-value or low-value speech. Uh, it's about the question of whether the state has a sufficient justification um, for regulating speech that everyone regards as useful, as valuable to society um, because the harm presented is sufficiently great. And the difference between this and the other, other situations is the government here is not regulating a particular message. It's not treating Democrats differently from Republicans, it's not treating pro-war speech differently from anti-war speech, it's basically saying all campaign contributions are treated alike or all campaign expenditures are treated alike, and the question is, is there a sufficient justification for regulating it? Liberals have tended to take the view that the state interest in regulating this is sufficiently great. Given what they see as the harm to the democratic process, uh, conservative justices have tended to take the view that seems to be pro-free speech, it is is pro- pro-free speech, um, that, um, uh, that the government interest here is illegitimate and that, that basically the marketplace of ideas has to, has to flow for itself.
0: Fascinating. So two questions on the table, campaign finance and commercial speech. Adam, let's hone in on the commercial speech question. You wrote a really interesting piece last year called First Amendment, patron saint of protesters is embraced by corporations where you reported that according to a study done by a business law professor at Harvard, John Coates, corporations have begun to displace individuals as the direct beneficiaries of the First Amendment, and you tied this into a broader anti-regulatory pro-business trend on the Roberts court. Tell us about that trend, and where is it going in the future? Um,
2: One way to think about it, you'll be surprised about what this case was about. There was a case decided uh, at the end of the last term called Reed against Town of Gilbert. It happened to be about church signs. Doesn't matter what it was about. It contained the quite broad statement, broadest I've ever seen uh, from Justice Thomas, but writing for the majority, saying that all speech, uh, all all content-based regulation of speech is subject to the most searching form of constitutional review lawyers call it strict scrutiny all you really need to know about it is if a law is subject to strict scrutiny it's likely to be struck down very likely to be struck down and in this mundane case the court makes this very broad statement and this goes back to a lot of what uh jeff has been talking about where some of these categories low value high value political commercial seem to be being collapsed at the court. And the court is saying, it's hard to believe it really means what it says, but it's saying that everything is uh, presumptively unconstitutional so long as the government is regulating based on content. And content regulation is is almost all of it. Securities regulation is content regulation. Regulation of uh, drugs is content regulation. And if the court can be taken as its word, it means that all sorts of regulations of mining companies, pharmaceutical companies, tobacco companies, juice companies about whether they have to disclose what percentage of sugar is in their product uh, are presumptively unconstitutional. Now, it may be that what the court is doing is a kind of shell game and making what used to be called strict scrutiny a little less strict. And we've seen a couple of examples of this, one involving uh, people who uh, wanted to provide benign support to uh, organizations designated as terrorists, another involving uh, judicial campaign speech. Uh, And it may be that strict scrutiny doesn't mean what it used to mean, but if the court can be taken as its word, uh, American businesses should be very happy because they will have a lot of Lochner-like ways to attack economic regulations.
0: Very interesting. Jeff, now let's hone in on the campaign finance. Side of it, um, tell us about the post Citizens United fissure points. Uh, Some of them involve protections for anonymous uh, speech. And I just want to ask you more directly: Imagine that Merrick Garland or another Democratic nominee is appointed to the court, uh, and Citizens United is overturned. Uh, How much of a difference would that make, and what would happen next?
1: Well, uh, first of all, to um, to explain the the issue in these cases. It's it's basically uh, individuals or corporations want to spend as much as they want in order to elect the candidates who they think should be in office. And that is a form of free speech. Uh, Spending money, the court has recognized, is certainly a form of free speech. Uh, But the question is, is there a point at which the government can say enough? And there's a value in having a degree of equality in the nature of public discourse. So, for example, if you imagined a presidential debate, in which the the moderator said, okay, here we go. Uh, first 10 minutes, highest bidder, right? Next 10 minutes, highest bidder. People would say that's insane. That's not the way we want to think about these issues, right? But what's happened in the American political process today is that because money can be so important in buying attention and in time and advertising and so on, that uh, money is turning what used to be a reasonably equal process into one that's totally distorted depending on who has the the most money. And nobody wants a democracy to operate that way. Nobody would make a democracy work that way if they were starting from scratch. The ideal is you'd have people have reasonably equal opportunities to convey their views, the citizens would listen to them, and they'd make their decisions. And you wouldn't have somebody with ten times as much time as another candidate. Um, and so the argument of the liberals on the court is that there is a sufficiently important government interest in maintaining some degree of reasonable equality in public discourse on these matters. Uh, and also another, another important interest is not having candidates so beholden to the donors that they no longer represent their constituents, they only represent their donors, which is another major problem. So in their view, is there sufficient justification to limit the amount? That can be spent, that can be contributed, uh, in order to avoid those kinds of problems. And the more conservative justices have taken the view: nope, uh, none of these limitations is constitutionally permissible. The only thing that you can prohibit is a direct bribe. You know, I'll give you a million dollars if you vote for this bill. That can be prohibited. But I'll give you a million dollars, wink, wink, wink. That's okay, right? And so, so that's that's a major part of the problem. So, what would happen now? Your question is if. Um, If uh, Merrick Garland were confirmed to the court? Well, Garland himself, it was literally him, is a very moderate judge. And I would be very surprised if he would vote to overrule uh, these prior decisions. Um, I would not be surprised if he were willing to find ambiguities in the decisions. Um, and to narrow their effect so as to allow over time a greater degree of regulation than the five conservative justices would permit. Um, and I should say this is, it, it's important to note this. Um, if I'm right about this, it's in direct um, contradiction to what the conservatives did because the Supreme Court initially upheld l- legislation that was struck down at Citizens United in the McConnell case in a five-to-four decision with Justice O'Connor being one of the five justices in the majority. And after Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, the court in a five to four decision, the only difference being Alito replaced O'Connor, turned around and overruled the prior decision only seven years later in Citizens United. Um, I thought at the time that that was a completely illegitimate exercise of judicial authority. It's appropriate for the court to overrule decisions, um, but only in limited circumstances where a prior case is proven to be wrong over a period of years, uh, not because one justice has replaced another justice and now we're going to just overrule things. Um, and I would hope that if there were a, a Justice Garland or some other Democratic nominee to the court to be the fifth justice on these issues, that they would not be so irresponsible and not be so reckless as to directly overrule Citizens United, even though I think it was a terrible decision.
0: Very interesting. Adam, do you agree with Jeff that a Garland or a judge like him would be reluctant to overturn Citizens United, and then imagine Citizens United were overruled, uh, how much of a difference would it make given the fact that Congress is unlikely to resurrect the restrictions on corporations that uh, Citizens United struck down?
2: I agree completely with Jeff's analysis about the incremental tack a Garland or a Garland-like justice would take. Uh, I do think there are pressure points which could, in short order, substantially affect the campaign landscape without overruling Citizens United. I think also Citizens United is in many ways a caricature. It's a shorthand of everything people hate about campaign finance, but what the case itself did was only to say, this is not a small thing, but it's not what people think it did. It didn't create dark money. It didn't create uh, large amounts of spending by rich people. It said corporations can spend what they like independently of candidates to talk about politics. Uh, And that's not the key problem in contemporary American politics. The key problem is dark money from rich people, and Citizens United had nothing to do with either of those points. As to what would happen in the wake of Citizens United at the federal level, Jeff, I think you're right that there's no reason to think that we're going to have any – unless we have a very, very different Congress than the one we see today – uh, there is not going to be campaign finance legislation passed at the federal level. I don't know that that's true in all the states. And I do think that it could be a case coming up from the states that would allow the court uh, to, to torque and, and chip, chip away at uh, some of the problems in campaign finance regulation. And again, not, not all or even most a consequence of Citizens United, but a consequence of a much older case called Buckley against Vallejo.
0: Please do. And and, and since Adam mentioned Buckley, let's imagine that the liberal majority overturns Buckley and allows for much broader restrictions than we've seen in a generation. What would happen then?
1: Um, Well, the, 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 the first point is whether we would see laws changed if Citizens United and, and, and the subsequent decisions were overturned. I want, the thing I wanted to add first is about the subsequent decisions. So Adam's right that Citizens United dealt with a specific question about corporate speech and so on. But in, in a series of decisions since then, the court has gone way beyond that. So to t- take an example, one state passes a law that says um, uh, we will give uh, a candidate who chooses to have public funding X amount of dollars. You don't have to take public funding, but if you choose to take it, we'll give you X amount of dollars. Um, if the opponent chooses to spend out of his own funds or out of funds he raises, uh, much more than X amount of dollars will increase what we give the publicly funded candidate. And the Supreme Court holds that's unconstitutional because it penalizes the rich candidate by giving more money to the to the poor candidate uh, because of the expenditures of the rich one. So the court has gone way beyond Citizens United in its, in its regulations here. Um, what would happen if Citizens United were overturned? The basic problem at this point is 80% of the American people don't like Citizens United, right? If given their druthers, if they could simply vote a constitutional amendment, they would vote one, right? Uh, But the problem is it doesn't work that way. And you have to have elected officials to approve constitutional amendments in state legislatures and in Congress, and, and they're not going to because What's happened since Citizens United and the subsequent decisions is that elected officials are now the beneficiaries of the world that was put into existence by the Supreme Court. So they're the ones who have access to money. They're the ones who have rich donors. Um, Citizens United and the subsequent decisions and so on have benefited them. They're not going to turn around now and pass laws that are going to make it more difficult for them to be reelected. I would like to think that they were good enough citizens to do that, but I don't think that's going to happen. So part of the problem, I think, is that we now have created a world of politics which feeds off of what Citizens United and the other decisions created so that even if you took away Citizens United, I'm not sure we would be able to turn anything back to where it should be. So I think it's a real threat to the future of American democracy.
0: Very interesting indeed. Well, let us turn to the question of hate speech. We're going to have an incredible panel on that question in just a moment uh, at Freedom Day, which listeners can hear on live at America's Town Hall. Adam, the University of Oklahoma was criticized by some for arguably violating the First Amendment by expelling a student who was videotaped using racial slurs during a fraternity event. And more broadly, as you've written, there is a dramatic debate in this country right now about whether the traditional vision of the First Amendment, which is my hero Louis Brandeis held, only allows restriction of speech if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, is consistent with growing demands to restrict speech that violates students' dignity or notions of equality. Describe that debate, and my question to you is, if it went up to the Supreme Court, would you have a majority in favor of the traditional First Amendment view or not?
2: So let me, let me give you the answer to the question and then unpack it a little bit. Uh, I do think that this court would protect hate speech Uh, The American tradition, at odds with the rest of the world, is we put up with a lot of ugly speech because we think it's more important to let those views out there counter it with other kinds of speech. Don't dignify it as some kind of taboo that we're so scared of that we're going to imprison people because they dare speak some set of words. Uh, Think about flag burning. There's a big controversy about whether flag burning can be banned or not, and the court said it cannot, and nobody burns flags anymore because once you take away the shock value, the taboo, the criminal nature of it, it gets dissipated some. But as you suggest, Jeff, um, the culture on American campuses is changing, and it seems to be changing fast, and is quite intolerant of, and understandably in one sense, of ugly speech, speech that makes... uh, Some students feel marginalized and takes away from their ability to learn in a comfortable environment. But I would say, in answer to the Oklahoma case or any public university case, the government oughtn't, under the traditional understanding of the First Amendment, be punishing people for saying even the ugliest things so long as. They're not threats directed to a particular person, so long as they're not fighting words, so long as they're not, as, as you said, uh, Brandeis put it, uh, going to result in, in imminent incitement. But those are narrow categories, and the broad American commitment to letting people say what they like, even if they're idiots, is strong, and I think would be supported on the current court.
0: Jeff, you helped to draft the University of Chicago's uh, very uh, admirable principles on free expression and hate speech. Do you believe uh, and do you agree with Adam that this traditional Brandeisian vision of the First Amendment will hold uh, on the courts? And given the fact that it's increasingly rejected on campuses, as students become older and become judges, do you imagine in a generation there will be a majority on the Supreme Court in favor of Brandeis's view on the First Amendment? Uh,
1: well, that's the first question. I do believe that the current court would strike down laws that... Um, Punished students or faculty members for engaging in expression that would, was seen as offensive or loathsome or made people uncomfortable or insulting or whatever. Um, and what I said earlier about low value stuff is critical here because this comes back to the point about uh, the, in the court saying that we will not allow um, punishment of uh, violent video games or punishment of uh, animal cruelty uh, because that's not historical pattern in our allowance of restriction of speech. That's also true of hate speech. And so one of the, I think, positive examples of the court's handcuffing itself by saying we're not gonna just pick and choose new categories of hate speech, or of low value speech because we don't like the speech, is that the same is true for hate speech. You cannot say there's, there's a tradition of punishing hate speech in this country. It's not low value. If it's not low value, there's no way you could possibly punish it, uh, as Adam suggested. Um, and I think that the current court would adhere to that to that view. Um, the And I think it's the right view. I mean, I, I think as an educator, Uh, that uh, one of our fundamental responsibilities is to prepare our students to be effective citizens in the real world and I don't think that we do a service to our students by shielding them and protecting them from expression and ideas that they don't like. In the real world, they're not gonna be protected, they're not gonna be shielded. What, what I see our function is doing is to, is to basically giving them the strength to be able to hear those things, to object to them, to explain why they're hateful and stupid and ignorant and shouldn't be accepted by other people, um, and to win that argument as they should on the merits rather than by silencing other people. Now, the question about the future, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, There has been this generational shift um, in recent years, very recent years. Uh, It used to be the case that students, in general, were among the greatest champions of free speech on on universities and colleges. And now, really, for sort of the first time, we have students who are demanding censorship of other students and of faculty members, um, and that's just a complete turnaround. And if you ask, you know, why did this happen? Um, I, I can think of two explanations, uh, both of which have been put forth by, by a variety of people. Uh, the one is that this particular generation of students um, has been raised differently from all their predecessors, that they've been raised by so-called helicopter parents, that they've been shielded all their lives from discomfort, from failure, from defeat, from, uh, from feeling bad about themselves. Everybody wins trophies, and they suddenly find themselves confronted with things that make them uncomfortable, um, and they want to be shielded. And uh, and that's one explanation. It's not a very attractive one, in my view, but I think it has a lot of credibility. Um, the other more positive one is it may be the case that, this, that prior generations of students, particularly minority students and so on, have felt exactly the same thing all along, but have been intimidated about ever saying so. And that this generation of students, therefore, deserves credit for saying, you know what, this is making it very hard for me to be an effective student. I am feeling marginalized and demeaned. And if this is what generations of students in the past have been subjected to and haven't spoken out about it, then universities have been oblivious to it and haven't been able to try to address it. And in that sense, I think that coming out and saying this is not a bad thing. The bad thing is saying censor the other people as opposed to help condemn those other people and help prepare us to deal with them in an effective manner.
0: Very interesting. Adam, a few years ago, you wrote a fascinating piece about how the U.S. is an outlier on hate speech. As you both described it, uh, younger people are moving toward a more European uh, effort to regulate hate speech in the name of dignity. You're now teaching a class on free speech at Yale Law School. What is your explanation for why the new generation of students is moving toward a European view of hate speech, and where is that going?
2: Well, I agree with everything Jeff said, and I might add one third factor, that um, with the rise of feminism, with the rise of the gay rights movement, uh, the American left, which is a pretty good description of where people are on American campuses, they're liberals, uh, are very engaged with making sure that there's equality, and are now privileging equality values over liberty values, and if that sounds like too much jargon, they want to make sure that people are and are treated fairly, and even at the expense of giving up the freedom of some other people to say what they wish. And I think Jeff described what ought to be the solution to this. It's a great thing that people who feel marginalized speak up and say that's wrong. That's not you. That, that's an unacceptable way to talk about me. Uh, you, you, you're making it hard for me to have a place at this university, but to stop short of stopping the other person from speaking, you know, to engage in what uh, academic communities ought to foster, which is vigorous debate, but not, and certainly not backed by punishment from the institution or from the government, not an effort to stop people from saying anything at all, but explaining to them why they're wrong.
0: Please respond. In in addition, um, Jeff, you've written the definitive history of the regulation of unpopular speech in America. Is this another example where courts are going to be the last backstop against increasing populist movements to regulate unpopular speech?
1: So the the first point I was going to make is is that uh, one of the grave dangers that the students and others calling for censorship in this context seem not to appreciate is that opening the door to censorship – is a recipe for disaster. And the key point that Brandeis made and that other great champions of free speech have made is basically that the only way that we keep our own freedom of speech safe is to prevent censorship of any speech. And in particular in this situation where it's basically minority groups, relatively marginalized groups who are the most active demanders of this um, censorship uh, in a world of of Donald Trump and and Ted Cruz, and uh, this is not something you. It's not a door you want to open, because in the long run, it will come back and bite them. Once you say universities can punish speech that you don't like, uh, there's a pretty good bet that you're going to have universities prohibiting Muslim speech and and pro-immigration speech and pro-abortion speech, and this is not a door they should want to open. It will come back and 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 hurt them big time in the long run, uh, and by them I mean all of us. Uh, I'm sorry, the second part of the question you had was uh,
0: Will, uh, will, uh, will, courts, be will a courts be the backstop?
1: Oh, um, I certainly, well, I, I hope that courts don't have to be a backstop. The first thing I would say is universities should understand that their fundamental responsibility is the preservation of academic freedom and of the right of their students and their faculty and their community members to speak freely and openly and boldly without censorship. So universities themselves should stand up for this in their own self-interest, wholly apart from the courts and the First Amendment as an external constraint. For public universities, um, the courts can play a critical role by enforcing the First Amendment. But it's important to remember that private universities are not constrained by the First Amendment. And therefore, an institution like the University of Chicago, or I teach, which is a private institution, it can do whatever it wants, and the courts have nothing to do with it. Um, and so it's especially important for those institutions to, um, to have a courageous stance on this and to make sure they are looking for the long run and not to give in to short-term pressures.
0: Um, Adam, Jeff mentioned uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Uh, I heard uh, 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 Senator Sass from uh, Montana recently make the case that classical First Amendment values are under assault both from populist forces on the right uh, embodied by Trump and those on the left embodied on college campuses. Uh, do you agree or disagree?
2: I was very shocked to see, not very well articulated, but nonetheless Donald Trump saying that our libel laws uh, need revision. Um, and that that's another area in which I thought we had reached a, a fairly comfortable consensus, that certainly when people want to criticize public figures like Donald Trump, uh, so long as they don't engage in something very close to a calculated falsehood, they're protected because we want to protect speech about politics. So there's, 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 some, uh, there's some weight to the charge that there are, there are fair-weather supporters of the First Amendment on both sides of the political spectrum.
0: And, and, Jeff, one more beat on the history of that. I mean, free speech and unpopular speech has, by definition, never had a popular constituency. Is this just the latest incarnation of that phenomenon? Well,
1: I mean, yeah, I think that one of the things we've learned throughout our history— is that in, in faced with a particular set of demands for censorship, uh, often we have um, yielded to that. You know, after we adopted the First Amendment, we adopted the Sedition Act of 1798, which made it a crime basically to criticize the government. Um, during World War One, we put people in jail. Uh, and universities expelled them for criticizing the war, or for criticizing the draft. In the McCarthy era, uh, universities expelled students and we prosecuted individuals because they were sympathetic or had at some point in their past be sympathetic to communism. Um, I, I think this is another example of those kind of waves. And the key thing is what we learn is that every time with hindsight, we say, we blew it, we made a mistake, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have gone after this speech. We were acting out of panic, out of fear, out of anxiety, and we did the wrong thing. And in my view, this is another illustration of exactly that phenomenon. Yes.
0: Um, Adam, I'm going to read some Brandeis because you can't have enough of him and it's Freedom Day. Uh, Here he is in Whitney. Those who won our independence believe the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties. And that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. It goes on very beautifully. And then, of course, he endorses counter speech and says the best response to evil counsels is good ones. How could counter speech work on campus as a response to hate speech?
2: Well, I think we've sketched out the beginnings of it, which is to, first of all, the, the, the university should encourage lots of discussion, lots of discourse. It should encourage, but not require, a civil tone. And people on both sides, one would hope, particularly the people who are engaged for years at a time in learning, uh, should listen to one another. And you would hope, and our experience has been, that the better ideas force out the worse ideas. And the hateful speech will uh, will be
0: shunned, uh,
2: but not censored.
0: Jeff, you're on campus and in the middle of these battles. Is Adam being idealistic or, is, or, re- or realistic in that hope? Well,
1: I think, You know, hate of various sorts is deeply built into human nature, and we're not going to make it go away, Uh, but I do think that we can educate our students both to think about the things they hate and to learn to be more nuanced and to to have more more empathy, Uh, but most importantly, I think we just have to learn to teach our students and our citizens uh, to not to be afraid of the things that offend them and that they find loathsome. And that uh, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that a university that takes this line, that it, it advocates it, that educates its students to the values of civility and mutual respect, um, that encourages students to be courageous, that gives opportunities for students who feel silenced and marginalized, um, gives opportunities for them to find ways to express their views in, a, in an effective manner. Um, I think it's a central part of education these days. And it's something that is at the core of the responsibilities of universities. I'm reasonably optimistic that a university that remains absolutely committed to this principle, as my university is, um, will will succeed at a very high level, at at enabling a discourse that is both uh, civil and mutually respectful and also free.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's time, gentlemen, for closing statements because we've got to go upstairs and have our great panels for Freedom Day. Adam. The First Amendment, as you've described it in the American tradition, protects speech as long as it's not intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Why is that principle important? And do you believe that it will endure on the Supreme Court in 20 years?
2: The principle is important because it's at the very foundation of the American conception of free discourse. It's, you know, it's not quite true that to say that it's the First Amendment for a reason because it was originally the Third Amendment, but it is today. And I think almost every American understands in a way that a European or Canadian doesn't that we believe in letting people say what they like and for other people to sort out what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And in general terms, I would expect this Supreme Court, the next Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court 50 years from now to stand behind that idea.
0: Beautiful. Jeff, same question to you. Why is the American conception of the First Amendment as articulated by Brandeis important, and do you think it will endure?
1: One thing we've learned is that free speech as a doctrine, as a concept, is largely about distrust. It's basically about distrusting ourselves, that is, the majority, Um, because the temptation to censor things you don't like is enormous. Nobody likes to be criticized, right? University presidents, if they had absolute power, would say, you can never criticize me, just as the the government did in in 1798. Um, And we just don't trust anyone to have that power over us because they will abuse it if I were the czar for eternity And I could make all laws forever and no one would ever question them hell with free speech (laughs) <laughs> right? I'll censor all the bad ideas. Why shouldn't I? Right? But, of course, nobody would ever want me to have that authority, and they shouldn't want me to have that authority, and I don't want you to have that authority. And that's what the free speech uh, concept is about, and that's what Brandeis was talking about. And I believe the Supreme Court is deeply committed to this, and I would imagine future justices will be committed to it as well.
0: Wonderful. Well, that great note of optimism is a perfect note here for Freedom Day in sunny Philadelphia. We're so excited to have this great discussion. Listeners, I want you to educate yourself about freedom and the First Amendment today. Go to the Interactive Constitution and check out Jeff Stone and Eugene Volokh on the First Amendment and then go watch the live stream or if you've missed it, the videos of our incredible free Freedom Day panels on the future of free speech online on campus and our great one-on-one interview with Adam Liptak, as well as the philanthropist David Rubenstein on free speech at the time of the founding. Adam, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you. you. Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg, Lana Ulrich, and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We, the people, as a member of Slate's Panoply Network, check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this great podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more.